When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, I'm Meg Teets, and this is Sorta Awesome. Hello and welcome back, Awesomes. You are listening to the show that is all about helping you be smart, strong, and social. We are in your earbuds every single week with all the awesome that you need to know. And you can also find us on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show or over on Facebook in our Sorta Awesome Hangout group. This is episode 133 of the show, and I have two quick reminders for you before we dig into this week's episode. First of all, we here at Sorta Awesome hope that you all had a lovely Valentine's Day to celebrate the one-year anniversary of us launching the Sorta Taboo series for our listener supporters. Kelly and I just released a brand new episode in that series this week, and it's all about how to navigate the delicate balance between expectations and reality in our intimate relationships, and whether or not it is sexy to schedule sex. To hear our thoughts on that topic and to get access to all of our past episodes we've created just for our listener supporters, go over to SortaAwesomeShow.com slash support. Okay, next reminder, time is running out for our Sorta Awesome Love campaign. You only have until February 23rd to get your entries in for the Sorta Awesome Love campaign. And entering this contest is super easy to do on either Instagram or Facebook. We are giving away some big old Amazon gift cards and some Kindle paper whites to our awesomes who share the Sorta Awesome Love with their family and friends and I sure would love for that awesome to be you. So go to sortaawesomeshow.com slash love to find out how to enter. And yes, links to all of this information will be in the show notes for this episode 133. So I am joined right now by my dear friend and lovely co-host, Rebecca Hoffer of simplyrebecca.com. You guys, today I am so, so excited to share with you a conversation with a woman I admire so very much. Simran Sethi is an author and a podcaster and all-around incredibly wise woman who gave a TED Talk back in 2012 that I cannot stop thinking about. The title of that talk was Why and How Do We Engage? And it is a perfect fit for this year, 2018, the year of the awesome. And we are going to get to my interview with Simran in just a few minutes. But first, let's go ahead and start this show the way we always do with our awesomes of the week. That moment in the show when we get to talk about the books, the movies, the TV shows, the podcasts, whatever it is that's making our lives a little bit more awesome this week. Rebecca, what do you have for us this week? My awesome of the week is a brand new series airing on Fox. You can also find it on Hulu. It is called The Resident. And when I first saw a commercial for this show, it just premiered in the end of January here. When I saw a commercial for The Resident, I immediately sent Meg a text message. I was like, Meg, 
Have you seen this show that's coming out? Two words for you. Carrie Agos. That's right. <laughs> yes. And I was like, wait, what? Tell me more. And I can't wait to hear because I know I haven't even gotten a chance to watch it yet, but I know you have been. I can't wait to hear all about it. So this is taking things like way back. Like, where are my awesome old school listeners? Because this is bringing it back to August 2015, episode 24, when Meg revealed her love for The Good Wife. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but we all as a collective group of awesomes, lost our minds over The Good Wife. That's right. <laughs> and we did. everybody was watching it. Well, that show, may it rest in peace, this is not a reboot of that show. However, the actor who played Cariagos in The Good Wife is returning to television, Matt Zucri, and he is playing the lead role as Conrad in The Resident. So here is a breakdown of what this show is about. Okay, so we have Conrad. He's the senior resident. He is a uh, take charge, do whatever is best for himself, do whatever is best for the patient, screw the rules. He's doing it his way. Forget about the highway. He's getting it done and going for the greater good. And he is leading, mentoring his intern, Devin. Devin is played by Manish Dayal, and he's known for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He's also in the 90210 remake, which is where I remember him from. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, you know, fresh out of medical school. So the pilot episode, you see them joining together on the first day. You watch Devin going into the hospital. He's paired up with Conrad. Conrad is, like, in his face. The first rule about medicine here is you don't ask questions. You just do what I say. And Devin's like, whoa, this guy is on a power trip. I can't handle this guy. You can tell that Devin is highly intelligent, but he has not put into practice anything because it's day one, literally, you know. So Conrad is guiding him through. And when I say that Devin sees Conrad as having this power trip, I really feel like that encompasses the entire aspect of this medical drama. I would say that this show at its core is about power. It's Mm. about the hierarchy that is in the hospital. It's about who has the right to talk back to who, who is watching out for who, um, who is uh, abusing their power, and even the power of medicine. And as people, as humans, can we conquer what is happening in people's bodies? Does Conrad have the power? Does Devin have the power to overcome the obstacles that are in their path? So in terms of medical dramas, if you were to compare this to, let's say, Grey's Anatomy, I would say this is on a different level. It's more of an intensity than what you would experience with Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy has had some intense, suspenseful episodes, for sure. But it's a different level of intensity. It's a different level of, I don't want to say that everybody's angry on the show. <laughs> <laughs> but but everybody's not not angry on the show. <laughs> exactly. Everybody's having some intense emotions in this show. It's more along the, the feel that you would have gotten from watching Cariagos 
in The Good Wife. Okay. You know, yes. There was definitely an intensity to that show. Definitely a uh, a, a struggle of power amongst everyone. Totally, yes. In The Good Wife. And I feel that a lot here again in The Resident. But not like in a bad way. Like I'm I'm here for it. I'm I'm enjoying it. it. There's only four episodes. Again, it's airing on Fox in real time right now, but you can also watch it on Hulu. You're only four episodes behind. You can get right in and enjoy the beauty of this show. It's it's a lot of fun. Oh, and I should also clarify, for those who are not old school awesomes, and you might not know Matt Zucri from The Good Wife, perhaps you know him from, of course, Gilmore Girls. Right. Yes. Now, so, were, you, were you a Gilmore Girls person? I'm not. No, I'm not. Okay. Did he, what was, do, do we know his character's name? I feel like it was Logan, but I don't know. I, I don't know, but I believe he was the boyfriend to, uh, what's the girl's name? Is it? <laughs> so good Rory. Gilmore Girls. Is it Rory? Is she the daughter? I think so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Everybody else listening is screaming and eye rolling at us so hard right now. This is the only show that Rebecca and I are really bad at. Because <laughs> neither of us, I've never even seen an episode. <laughs> I watched four and I was uh-huh. like, this is this is so slow. What is happening here? Where <laughs> it was a when moment is this going to get better? We missed it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But you don't have to miss The Resident. So. Yeah. Go check it out. Okay. Well, as I shared with you, Rebecca, earlier off mic, I myself am giving up TV for Lent. And so I am going to have a great show to binge and look forward to at the end of Lent in April or March, you know, 31st, April 1st is Easter. So yeah, I have so much to look forward to. I can't wait. I'm totally going to be looking forward to diving into this because again, you all you had to do was text me Cariagos and I was like, what? Hello, I'm in. <laughs> yes, I can't wait to hear what you think. <laughs> so great. Okay, I love that awesome of the week. Um, also, speaking of Lent really quickly, this is not my awesome of the week, but for those of you who are also observing Lent right now, um, I a couple of weeks ago, I made a playlist on Spotify for those people who are going through the season of Lent and would like to have some music to inspire their, um, you know, their devotion and uh, meditation during that time. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's called Oh Sacred Head. Um, and it is, oh, it's called Oh Sacred Head, a Lenten playlist. You can find it on Spotify. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it a little bit easier to find it. It's got like 20 songs for your Lenten season. So that wasn't my awesome of the week, but speaking of giving up TV for Lent reminded me of that. So, all right. My awesome of the week, Rebecca, you'll be so proud of me. I do tend to save my YouTube inspired Awesomes of the Week to talk to you about because you are a reigning queen of all things YouTube on the Sort of Awesome team for sure. So my Awesome of the Week is a YouTube channel called Baking with Josh and Ange. Now, if if you follow Angela Kinsey on Instagram, and if you watch her stories on Instagram, you may already be familiar with this YouTube baking channel because it was started by Angela Kinsey. Most people know Angela Kinsey for her role of Angela Martin on the TV show The Office. She also recently played alongside Colleen Ballinger, also known as Miranda Sings, in the Netflix series Haters Back Off, which I have watched a few episodes of. It's silly, but kind of adorable, too. (laughs) 
But Angela Kinsey is so much fun to follow on Instagram. I've even talked about her Instagram um, feed on the show before because she's so much fun. And her stories are particularly great because they really show a wonderful slice of just family life, of just being a mom and a friend and a wife. So fun to follow her on there. I also have a particular affection for Angela Kinsey because she's also a Chi Omega alumna, as I am. She was a Chi at Baylor University. So I even long time ago when she was first on the office, I've had a great affection for her. But so anyway, she's married to a man named Josh. They are a blended family. He had two sons. She had a daughter. Um, I think that that really informs so much of their social media presence because they are very, very connected as a family. And that really comes through on their social media. So I the interest for starting this YouTube channel started with Angela's Instagram stories because from time to time she would feature her husband, Josh, baking. Apparently it is a hobby of his and he really got into it to bake for his sons and then later bake for their whole family. And people really wanted to see more of the, them in the kitchen together. Their chemistry and their dynamic is just so cute and so sweet, Rebecca. I love it so much. It just makes me so happy. So they started this YouTube channel. Baking with Josh and Ange. They feature really fun, cute, simple recipes for family. Um, she also will bring in guests for uh, for videos on their channel, like Rain Wilson. He played Dwight Schrute on The Office. Jenna Fisher, who played Pam on The Office, who is also Angela's real-life BFF. She's often in Angela's Instagram feed as well. Um, and other people, too. Uh, Colleen Ballinger was on one episode of Baking with Josh and Ann. Ange. And it's just so cute and so fun. If you just need a little bit of a break in the day to check out some people having fun and being cute in the kitchen, and also something that you can totally watch with your kids on YouTube. I've said many times on Sorta Awesome that my kids are so YouTube obsessed. <laughs> so it's a really cute one to watch along with your kids. So Rebecca, I especially recommend it for you. I think you'd love it. Well, I'll definitely check it out. I always find it interesting when you have people who are in more traditional forms of media and entertainment dipping their toe into these other arenas like yes. Instagram stories, like YouTube, yep. and doing things independent on their yeah. own. Would we know Josh from any Hollywood work or is... No, I don't think he's in the entertainment industry at all. I'm not okay. sure exactly what his profession is. I'm sure they've talked about it from time to time. I can't remember right off the top of my head. But no, he's not notable. Just totally a fun guy. The, the thing that about, I think, Angela Kinsey in particular, but also their whole family, you just watch them and you're like, we could totally be friends with them. They're so just like normal and so fun. It seems like they always have a very awesome take on things. I personally think that Angela Kinsey is an awesome who just doesn't know she is. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, let's tweet this to her and yeah. maybe she'll be converted. <laughs> Maybe so. So anyway, again, YouTube channel, Baking with Josh and Ange. We will put links to uh, all of our awesomes that we've talked about here uh, today in the show notes for this episode. Hey, don't forget that every single Friday over in our Sort of Awesome Hangout group on Facebook, we open up the floor for you all to share your awesomes of the week. I've picked up so many awesome things in my life from you guys sharing your awesomes. If you have not joined us over there, you can do that by going to facebook.com slash groups slash Sort of Awesome Hangout. 
Awesomes, I am so excited for 2018 because this summer, my husband Kyle and I are celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary. I loved being a June bride, but one thing I did not love was setting up our wedding registry. It was so stressful and so overwhelming. I'm so happy that the sponsor for this week's episode is Zola. No one knows better than Zola what couples are looking for in a wedding registry, including how to fight the overwhelm. That's why Zola.com provides couples with great starter guides to set up your registry, and it also features registries of real couples, and you can see all of the interesting and awesome things that they have picked as well. I've spent enough time creeping through the registries of lots of couples on Zola to know that Zola.com is super easy to use, and it's filled with amazing features for couples, including a group gifting option so that guests can contribute to a big gift. You can also include photos and notes on your registry to tell your guests why you picked what you picked. Recently, Kyle and I decided to refresh our bath towel collection for our home, which is exactly the kind of thing that boring old married people do. And not only was the Zola website incredibly easy to shop from, the shipping was super fast too. If 2018 is going to ring the wedding bells for you or someone you know, you have to send them over to check out Zola. In fact, awesomes, to sign up with Zola and receive a $50 credit towards your registry, go to Zola.com slash awesome. That's Zola, Z-O-L-A dot com slash awesome for $50 towards your registry. Thank you, Zola. Awesomes, did you start 2018 with a renewed commitment to do awesome things for yourself, including moving your body in strengthening and empowering ways? Well, if the winter doldrums have slowed your progress on that goal, all of that can change without you even leaving your house with Daily Burn. This episode of Sorta Awesome is sponsored by Daily Burn, the fitness program you can stick with and get results that last. Daily Burn is the world's leading provider of on-demand video workout programs that you can do at home or anywhere you have a connected device. Daily Burn has thousands of classes for every level of athlete. They offer Pilates, yoga, bar workouts for beginners to advanced. There are programs to stretch, programs to increase your mobility, and programs to build strength. And if you are like me and you're the kind of person that needs a little fresh inspiration every now and again, you will love Daily Burn's 365. They offer a new live-streamed workout every single day that you can join in. And I love that you can join an active online community where you can share your fitness journey and connect with Daily Burn trainers and members just like you. To explore Daily Burn and get started on a new fitness program for yourself, visit dailyburn.com awesome today to start your free 60-day trial. That's dailyburn.com slash awesome, dailyburn.com slash awesome for a free 60-day trial. Thank you, Daily Burn. Okay, friends, so as I said at the top of the show today, I am absolutely thrilled to share this conversation with Simran Sethi with the awesome community. As you'll remember, in the month of February, we are focusing on the second part of the Awesome Manifesto that says, we believe that everyone has an inner sparkle and that uncovering it within ourselves helps us become the kind of people that help others shine. Now, for most of us, recognizing the inner awesome within ourselves and the people we love can be challenging, but ultimately, we really see the worth in it. But what about the people who are difficult to understand? What about the people who we outright do not agree with, do not want to get to know, and do not think that we have anything to learn from? 
Well, the thesis of Simran's TED Talk is that the people we disagree with can be our greatest teachers. So how do we connect with and how do we engage with people who are different from us? You guys, this is one of my most favorite conversations we've ever been able to feature on Sorta Awesome, and I can't wait for you to hear Simran's words of wisdom today. Let's get right to it. Okay, Awesomes, I am so happy and so honored to welcome to Sorta Awesome today, Simran Sethi. Simran is a journalist and an educator who is focused on food, sustainability, and social change. She was named Environmental Messenger by Vanity Fair and designated one of the top eight women saving the planet by Marie Claire. Simran is the creator of The Slow Melt, the first podcast on the continuum of chocolate and awesomes. Let me tell you what, if you're looking for a great binge listen in the month of February, you have to go check out The Slow Melt. It is fascinating. We'll put a link in the show notes for this episode for sure. So The Slow Melt won the 2017 Savour Award for Best Food Podcast. Simran is also the author of Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. In that book, she tells the story of changes in food and agriculture through bread, wine, chocolate, coffee, and beer, some of my favorite things. And that book was named Best Food Book by the Smithsonian in 2016. Simran is a fellow at the Institute for Food and Development Policy in Oakland, USA, and she's a former visiting scholar at the Cocoa Research Center in St. Augustine, Trinidad. So Simran, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. Thank you for having me. Well, I have long been familiar with your work and your message and especially your advocacy for food and sustainability. And I find all of that fascinating. A lot of those issues are so close to my heart and to the way our family lives. But what I really want to talk about today is a TED Talk that you gave back in 2012, which in some ways feels like a lifetime ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that talk was called Why and How Do We Engage? And I just loved that talk so much. I've listened to it several times now. Your driving thesis really in that talk is that in order to transform our world, we have to transform how we engage with each other. And that is exactly what we're focusing on here on Sorta Awesome in the first part of 2018. So I do have some questions about that talk and if your beliefs about that, about how we engage with each other have changed since 2012. But first, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit of the story of your childhood, the places that actually shaped your growing up years. I know you were born in Germany, but what happened next? So I was born, as you said, in Germany. My father was actually did a lot of his post-collegiate studies there. He got his master's and his PhD in Munich. And my mother, they met in India. And then my mother joined him there when she finished up her master's degree. And soon after, I mean, months after I was born, we actually immigrated to the United States on the invitation of the National Institutes of Health. So my father was in cancer research. And so he continued to do that work. And my sister was born here in the US. So for me, it was, I guess, one of the things that's kind of central to how I see my life is that I've always felt like a bit of an outsider. I've had a couple of different places that I've called home. So, you know, when I was growing up, we would travel back to India to see my grandparents and my cousins and aunts and uncles. And then we moved 
from the D.C. area to North Carolina when I was five years old. So that was another, you know, a different kind of culture shock moving into the Bible Belt. And so, yes, I think that's given me a really good perspective on becoming immersed in a culture, but also having sensitivity to understand you know, what it means to be outside of it. Absolutely. And all of that makes so much sense. I can only imagine that being in those different cultural contexts really did shape so much of your growing up years and how you learned to relate to other people. In fact, a really big part of the message of your TED Talk is that people who are not like us, who differ from us, you know, religiously, politically, have different opinions on social matters, that those people who are different from us can actually end up becoming our best teachers instead of like really resisting those differences. If we kind of lean in and engage that they have things to teach us. And I'm wondering if you can say more about how that move, like you said, you know, from like a really urban metropolis kind of area to more rural areas outside of that context that you were used to, I'm wondering if that helped you kind of discover that truth about how do we connect and engage with people that are so different from us? Absolutely. So you just referenced urban. So at the time I was living in New York City, I spent most of my adult life in New York, Bombay, India, and Singapore for work. And then in my, I guess, mid thirties, I moved to Lawrence, Kansas, which is smack dab in the middle of the country. And I hadn't, you know, I'd grown up in North Carolina, but I think when you kind of grow up in a place, you know, it's just part of who you are. So as an adult, I had a little bit of a different perspective on what it meant to come into a different community. And one of the things I loved about Lawrence and continue to love about Lawrence is the social fabric is really tight and people are neighbors first. You know, there were a lot of people that I met for the first time in my life because I'd lived in New York and then gotten my business degree in San Francisco. So I was in these kind of a little bit of a bubble situation, Mm, you know, at that time, as you mentioned, was on environmental issues. So I was in a, you know, having conversations with people who were a lot like me. And I was able to kind of understand the nuances of that when I left New York and moved to Kansas, because all of a sudden, you know, I lived in close proximity to farmers who were, you know, using Roundup, who were growing commercial, you know, growing commodity crops, who were trying to, you know, create the best lives that they could for themselves and their families, and were also kind of engaged in some practices that were a little bit challenging to my notions around sustainability. So it really was a wonderful opportunity for me to start to better understand points of connection, as you mentioned. And there was one moment in particular, I was one of the co-authors of the climate plan for the city of Lawrence. And I was trying to get buy-in from the Chamber of Commerce, the local Chamber of Commerce. And one of the people on the board, you know, I went through my spiel and he said, you know, you had me. He's like, I'm not so sure about, you know, the relationship between humans and our sort of activity and climate change, but you had me at air pollution because my daughter has asthma. So there was another way to enter into the conversation about particulate pollution and our local coal plant that didn't necessarily involve buy-in on the bigger issue of climate change. Now, I want to say very clearly that I completely, that climate change is real. <laughs> there is scientific consensus on this. Like, I'm not interested in having that debate per se. Sure. But 
but I was fascinated that there would be another point of connection, you know, or that my closest coworker at the University of Kansas, where I ended up teaching journalism, was someone who was a libertarian, who hunts on a regular basis, who cared just as much about the origins of his food as I did, but he approached it from a completely different direction. And so it was really about understanding kind of how we share so much. We have similar cares. We have certainly similar physiology. We are similar in our love of certain things and our desire for what I described in that talk that you referenced, both agency and communion. So the desire to kind of get ahead in the world and strike out on our own and also the deep and enduring desire to belong and to connect with others. So so much of what we kind of go through in our lives is shared. And it's really the question of how do we recognize those similarities and try to connect with people who maybe on the surface seem very different from us. I will add my talk, the talk that you're referencing was given in 2012. And I do think now in 2018, we are in a very different kind of conversation and political climate. And one of the things I find very challenging is to try to connect to those who profess hate. Mm. And that is the real hard line for me. I am a small brown immigrant woman, and I feel like that work has to be done. But I would say that that is the work that needs to be done by people who maybe have easier points of access. So I would call upon, you know, my white brothers and sisters. Yeah. Take that on and to right. understand that for me to kind of cross that divide is a challenge to my personal safety. And it's one that I'm not necessarily willing to do at this point in time. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I do think it's so interesting how much just, I mean, like I said, 2012 in so many ways just feels like it was such a long time ago. I mean, we could look at the calendar and be like, well, it's actually six years ago, <laughs> but it feels like culturally speaking, mm -hmm. it feels like so long ago. And whereas once, you know, certainly even in you reference this in the TED talk that was in 2012, that mm -hmm. even at that time you talked about, you know, these schisms that are happening, these great divides that are really being forged between us, particularly on issues that we have really big feelings about and just really cannot understand the other side of the discussion, that those divides were beginning to happen. But it does, in a lot of ways, feel like now it's hard to even have a civil conversation about these things. So, I mean, I just, yeah, it's so yeah. significant to me yeah. how much things have changed. Incivility is being encouraged, which is what's so disheartening. You know, yes. the goal then is to resist that and to turn toward each other. But I think that, you know, the things I said with a lot of confidence back in 2012, I still believe in, but I would also encourage people to exercise caution when they feel any sort of hesitation, when their personal safety is threatened, when their families or their livelihoods or their I don't know, legal status is threatened. Like it's a bit more nuanced now because there is such a willful kind of deliberate effort to tear us apart, you yes. know? And yes. so even in the language that we use, I mean, something like, I don't know, I think of like the conversation that happened yesterday with the State of the Union address, you know, chain migration versus family reunification. These are the exact same things, mm, you know? Right it gets to that sort of place of narrative and story to consider very deliberately how we 
categorize certain situations, certain types of people, certain scenarios. And that, I think, is transformative. You know, one of the things that I learned through all the research that led up to the talk that you referenced and to a lot of the writing that I did and that I continue to do is something that was shared by a psychologist at Yale named Anthony Lyserowitz. And what he shared with me is that data doesn't change people's decision-making. Right. You know, what changes the decisions that we make are stories and points of connection. So we can look at something like gay marriage, for example, and kind of the trajectory or the evolution of that or the acceptance of transgender people or, or, you know, different races or ethnicities or what have you. And these are all works in progress, but it's that idea and that understanding that when people recognize that their loved ones were affected by these challenges, that they started to see these issues differently. I think that's critical. I think language that builds people up, that brings us back together is crucial. And that language can also, you know, rip at the social fabric and really distance us from each other. Absolutely. That is so true. I want to kind of circle back to a point that you made in that some of these conversations, it is not just uncomfortable for people of color or for people from different sexual orientation, whatever the sort of, you know, label that you might assign yourself to or belong to by your nature, that it becomes actually not just uncomfortable, but dangerous for people to engage fully in those conversations, but those of us who have privilege in an area, again, mm -hmm. be depending on if we're white or depending on our socioeconomic class, whatever the case may be, the first step, which I think a lot of us really are coming to terms with where we do have areas of privilege, that we have the responsibility then to be voices speaking into these conversations. So I want to kind of tie that together with what you were saying about storytelling, because one of the points you talk about in your talk is how we have to kind of break into people's finite pools of worry. Right, right. <laughs> that all of us have a limited amount. And I think all of us have experienced this in terms of like compassion fatigue or just being like, everything's terrible. I don't even yeah. know where to start. Right. So that when we're having these conversations, again, let's just say you're listening and you're similar to me and that you're, you know, you're white, you're straight, you're middle class, you have some privilege that allows you to speak to other people with similar realms of privilege, mm -hmm. being able to talk and have conversations that would be, you know, create space for telling stories that would possibly bring people into be able to find the place of connection, I think is so important and something that I just, I believe really can be transformative. But here's the hard thing. Like, where do we even find a foothold to you know, start to develop those relationships to where storytelling would even be parts of the conversation. What? There's a lot in there. I know. Sorry. <laughs> no, I want to address so many points. Let okay. me back up for a second because you referenced the finite pools of worry. And yes. I want all your listeners to understand what that is. Okay. Yes. There was research done at Duke University by behavioral economists that has been, you know, one of the touchstones of my work and my life. It like hit me like a ton of bricks, which was basically when we're engaging with people, we have this fundamental understanding will help a lot, which is that we all exist 
kind of within these finite pools of worry. We have these, I should say, finite pools of worry. And what that means is that there's only so much we can worry about at one time. So, you know, it's tempting to say, ah, people are idiots. Oh, they don't care. The information, again, is far more nuanced now. There's been a ton of research in the last couple of years about how, for example, the conservative and the liberal brain are wired a little bit differently around empathy and kind of concerns about authority and all these different things that I think is really important to look into. But I think one of the other kind of operating principles that should you know, be wedged in people's mind is that there's only so much we can worry about at one time. So if I want to engage with you, I need to consider you know, either displacing something in your finite pools of worry, right? So in that kind of finite stuff that you can worry about every day, or frame whatever my concern is within your existing cares. So for example, when people were talking about, you know, several years ago when Al Gore came out with his film, An Inconvenient Truth, there was a lot of conversation about sea level rise. Well, you know, I was sitting in Kansas and there weren't a lot of people worried about right. sea rise, right? Yes. I mean, what we could have done was frame that in terms of impacts on agriculture mm. as a very, on you know, drought that, you know, these would set up the conditions for another dust bowl. I mean, there were so many ways to kind of have the conversations about these global issues with specificity in a way that would resonate with people. So, you know, here we were, and I was one of them talking about these invisible gases, you know, the time trajectory was always 2050, you know, that was so far away, you know, people couldn't see the immediate impacts and the response was very different than what it is now, you know, and there has been research that shows like, people respond to the thermometer. They respond to immediate changes in their immediate environment. Right. So when we're going to talk about issues, we kind of need to touch those places if we want to get some traction. If you're going to talk to me about polar bears and I'm trying to get my kids to school or just you know finish a writing assignment, I'm going to feel bad about it, but I'm going to move on pretty quickly because my little brain yes. can't handle that. It's not because I'm trying to be a jerk or you know apathetic. So with that in mind, I would say, I really appreciate what you say about, you know, having people kind of take this responsibility on themselves in this challenging political time, or I don't want to keep using the word political, it's just a challenging kind of time in right and culture yeah. history. So, you know, how do we get through? How do we break through is your question. And I think because that the way we do that to understanding people's cares. So I think, again, a lot of times people come in, you know, full of story, full of data, full of the business cases, full of the moral imperatives or what have you. But the place to start is with humility and with quiet. Mm. And with trying to understand where another person is at, even on the surface, right? So you're a white woman with some, you know, socioeconomic privilege, everything that you just mentioned. And yet, you know, we don't know what your full story is. We don't know with what someone else is carrying on any given day. You know, maybe their son has just come back from a tour of duty. Maybe their child is in the NICU. Maybe they're one paycheck away, even though it looks like they're not away from eviction. Like we don't know. Right. Maybe, you know, a loved one is facing, you know, a challenge with opioids. I mean, that there's so much that can only be understood by listening and by generosity of spirit and engaging. And so I think, especially in those situations where on the surface, it looks like we're connected, that it's our responsibility to try to engage and take things a step further. So 
I'm not walking up on a white supremacist. They scare right. me. They want me, you know, I'm Indian, but they want to build a wall around people who look like me. They want to deport people who look like me. They want to, you know, ban people, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not ready to go there right now. But you, you know, would be someone that there would be at least an initial point of entry for, right? right? So yeah. that you're already kind of one step ahead. And then to have, to garner, to find that courage and to be willing to speak up for those who maybe who can't for whatever reason share their stories in those scenarios I think is vitally important I think this is a defining moment where it's really going to take you know people coming together and shedding light on different kinds of scenarios trying to be an interpreter for different kinds of people to really step up and show what it means to be compassionate to be generous to be sincerely caring of other communities you know what does it really mean to be an ally well it doesn't mean i think just signing a petition and telling me that you care about me it means showing me mm. you know Yes. Oh my gosh, that's so good. I got chills several times as you were saying that because I think those bits of wisdom that you're sharing right now truly can transform our conversations. And I know I keep referencing your talk because it just really had made such an impact on me. But there's this one moment that I super loved in the talk. You showed a picture of a man that you sat behind at a climate conference. Right. And he's wearing this bright yellow t-shirt. On the back of the t-shirt are he he has you know, sort of printed the lies that he believes that people are spreading about climate change. So things that were sort of antithetical to beliefs that you hold that are, you know, based in science. And you're thinking to yourself, what is this guy doing here? And yet after the speaker gave his talk, that same man with the, you know, there to tell everybody about the lies of climate change actually approached the speaker to further engage. Listen, this stuff is impacting my little community too. And so I love that moment because I feel like it gives us hope that there's room to be surprised. Yeah. We may think we have somebody pegged like, you know, old uncle John, he believes this, this, and this, and there's no way I could ever get through to him. But if we look for and are intentional for looking for those places to be surprised, then we might find our foothold where we can begin to listen. And like you said, have that spirit of generosity and seek out those connection points. You're absolutely right. And I think it's, it did shock me. It was a regional energy conference in Wichita, Kansas. And <laughs> I didn't expect, you know, this environmental justice advocate who had given the presentation to then be approached by this, by this man in the bright yellow t-shirt, you know, and you know, that happened with some regularity in Kansas. That's why I delight in the Midwest so much. That's why I delight, you know, this area had been dismissed as flyover country. And, you know, again, everybody gets painted with these same brush strokes. And this mm. happens over and over again. You know, yeah. all the urban elite are this, all the rural poor are that. It's galling because you know, I am part of a profession that actually perpetuates those myths. <laughs> and I don't want to be like that, you know, and I think we're always as storytellers of any ilk, you know, journalists or otherwise trying to walk that fine line between generalizing in a way that makes sense and accepting and honoring the nuances and the details of people's lived experience. So it's really been profoundly humbling to me to be surprised in so many different instances. And I think that's another, I think, maybe precondition for connection 
is a willingness to allow for that surprise, that serendipity, that opening. We can move cautiously through the world for whatever reason, but I think allowing for our minds to be changed, allowing for new information to be received as opposed to what seems to be happening in this era, which is a calcification, you know? Yeah. I did mention at the top, like I steadfastly believe climate change is real and I do, I believe in science, but that doesn't mean that I'm unwilling to have a conversation with somebody about their concerns, you know? And it definitely doesn't mean that I'm unwilling to find points of connection with somebody who maybe doesn't, you know, feel the exact same way I do. So I think that's our biggest challenge now is looking for those small openings. Well, yes. Speaking of small openings, I love the story that you told about your friend Cade, the hunter in Kansas. It sounded to me as I listened to your talk that the opening to that conversation was him sharing tomatoes with you that he himself had grown and that that just like the sharing of food can be such a great place to start. But these little small things, if we're keeping our eyes open, if we're keeping our ears open, that these points of connection can really happen in day to day life. We don't have to have like a big I mean, we can have big, you know, sort of like town hall meetings or, you know, big group discussions. But actually, we're not limited to that. It can happen in the day to day. Right, exactly. I actually think that's where the majority of it happens. Mm. And if we're directing our gaze toward the big kind of epiphanic moment, we'll lose these small points of connection. So we'll say, I'll use myself as an example. I could have easily said, oh, Cade, the libertarian, you know, who drinks milk and grew up in a double wide, you know. Right. Uh, very unlike me, who's never traveled outside of the United States, who served in the armed forces, who is much more conservative in his outlook than I am, we don't really have any points of connection, but I appreciate the tomatoes, you know, Mm -hmm. but instead it was like, oh, the tomatoes are the point of connection. Right. So instead of kind of overlooking that, I guess I just, I was quite struck and, and, you know, he is still a friend. So he is still someone that I'm connected with, even though I no longer live in Kansas and that we've, I guess we allowed our friendship to become the default place. So I think this might be useful for people who are, you know, approaching family members who maybe don't agree with them on many issues that the default is we're family, Mm, right? right. So then how do we kind of break through those barriers? For Kate and I, we didn't agree on everything. Absolutely not, you know, but the default was we're friends. And again, I know that's a fine line and there's a lot of nuance there, particularly right now, but I think that's been really helpful for me. There was a moment when I was really concerned about coming home. There was one person in my family who I, you know, didn't agree with how they had voted in the election. And another cousin stepped in and said, we are family, you know, like we have to figure out a way to kind of have these conversations. And then it turned out I was completely wrong about that person. So I didn't have to have that conversation, but it was a conditions became very different, you know, the the grounds and the point of reference kind of shifted. So yeah, so we are all Kansans, we are all students, we are all Indians, we are all women, we are all like that we can create a condition that is big enough to hold a lot of us, you know, and then move from that place. That is amazing. That's such great practical advice, because sometimes these conversations feel too big to even know where to start. But that idea of acknowledging or even creating a condition that is the 
foundation to start these conversations is so powerful. So gosh, this has just been so good. Do you have any other closing thoughts, any other advice, anything else that you would love for us to know and think about and hear as we move forward? Our goal in 2018 is to really take the goodness and the hope that we all have dwelling within us out into the world. So if you have any other closing thoughts, Simran, I'd love to hear them. Gosh, I just think... Want to come up with something audacious, Meg, and like really inspirational. <laughs> Maybe just like let yourself really be inspired and humbled by the world. Mm. You mentioned at the top of the show, you know, you suggested people binge listen to my podcast. Yes. I tell you it's on chocolate, but I call it the slow melt because chocolate, you know, melts at our body temperature, right? Just below right. human body temperature. Mm-hmm. And that for me, it was about relationship and connection. And so sure, the podcast is about chocolate, but it's actually about the people involved in chocolate and the relationship we have with chocolate from an emotional perspective, from a flavor perspective, from, you know, from a health perspective, like kind of historical, geographical, et cetera, et cetera, political, economic, that it's, that anything can be that, you know, that any situation, any moment, any food, any place can become a teacher and a lesson. And that's how I'm trying to move forward in the world. And that to me is, is what makes every moment an opportunity for connection, every interaction, an opportunity for connection. And, you know, not to say it always happens, but rather that to sort of move in the world with that sense of openness and expansion can, you know, be a different way of kind of engaging. I'm just like over here quietly clapping so I don't hurt anyone's ears. But yes, (laughs) totally, totally. That's a great benediction for today's conversation. Simran, thank you so much for your time and for bringing your wisdom to our conversation right now. I genuinely and deeply appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Awesomes. I so hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, don't forget, you can find me at Sorta Awesome Meg on Instagram and Twitter, also over on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sorta Awesome. And you guys, don't forget to enter the Sorta Awesome Love campaign before February 23rd so we can get an Amazon gift card or a Kindle Paperwhite into your awesome little hands. Go over to SortaAwesomeShow.com slash love to find out more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see y'all next time. Sorta Awesome was created and is hosted by me, Meg Teets. Sarah Robertson is our assistant producer and production collaboration comes from Kelly Gordon and Rebecca Hoffer. Kelly Gordon is our digital media producer and we are so thankful for the ongoing support from our listener supporters. Music is provided by the band Prager. You can find more of Prager's music at pragermusic.com. To find show notes on this and every episode of Sorta Awesome, and also to spread the Sorta Awesome love to all of your friends, you can head on over to SortaAwesomeShow.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.